0: I hope that you have enjoyed these passages of scripture as much as I have, as we've looked mostly through Luke's gospel at meals that Jesus has sat at tables with other people, and then also conversations about meals, not just in Jesus' life, but in the world to come when Christ returns. Quick recap, if you are not been following along, if this is your first time, or for those of you who just want to be reminded, three things I think we could summarize from this summer we've learned that these meals that jesus shared with people were symbolic that what they were symbolizing was in part a wedding so there was a lot of wedding language and symbolism in the different meals that we've seen the first meal was actually the meal in john chapter 2 where jesus changes water to wine at a wedding and then so on and so forth there's been other wedding imagery so to look forward to a day when there would be a, a marriage between God and, the, and humanity, between God and his people. And so Jesus is having these wedding meals. So that's, that's one thing that we've seen. Another thing we've seen is who Jesus has shared these meals with. And we've mostly seen that they're the unclean bad people. It's the wrong people to the wedding that he's invited. And so one of the things we're wanting to find out is why. Why did Jesus spend all his time with quote-unquote unclean, bad people, criminals and thieves and prostitutes. And the last thing we've seen is that the answer to that, that these wedding meals with the wrong people were because they aren't those kind of people anymore. He says that they were sick and now they're healed, that they have need of a doctor and he's the doctor and he has fixed them. It's similar to the idea that someone might have a a terminal illness, and if they were to be cured from their cancer or something like that, we would celebrate. Wouldn't you celebrate if you had a terminal illness and you were going to die and you're in stage four cancer and you've got two months to live, and then all of a sudden, next scan, it's completely gone? Do you think you might celebrate? You might say, yes. And so, throughout these meals, we've seen Jesus doing just that. It's time to celebrate. People who were lost are now found. People who are sick are now healed. People who used to live a certain way, like Zacchaeus as an extortioning criminal, is now giving away his money and his life to help others. So in other words, the uncleanliness of these people, other religious people were afraid that that uncleanliness would be contagious and make Jesus unclean. But it's the exact opposite. It's the contagiousness of Jesus' righteousness that gets spread onto those who are lost and dirty around him, and that's why it's fitting for Jesus to celebrate with these meals. So that's what we've seen for the last 10, 11 weeks. Today, we're going to see a very different kind of meal, not a wedding meal per se, not a meal with the wrong kind of people, and not a meal to just show Jesus' spreading of his contagious righteousness. I was asking one friend of mine about this sermon series and he said his favorite meal in all of Luke's gospel is Luke chapter 24, Jesus' meal with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. That's the meal we're going to look at today. Now, I didn't agree with him because in my original plan. I didn't even plan on preaching this. So I didn't think, ah, this is not that big of a deal. But man, this week, am I glad that we are including this meal in this sermon series. My hope and prayer is that you too will see with great joy The beauty in Jesus, in your own heart, in your own life, this meal. So I'm going to read this story, but I want to give you three things to kind of keep in your mind to be looking out for as we read along. So we're in Luke chapter 24, and these black Bibles around you, you can find on page 885, Luke 24, starting in verse 13. And here's the three things. I want you to look out for darkness. Namely, I'm talking about spiritual blindness and darkness. That's the first thing. I want you to see how Jesus is seen as like a light burning in the hearts of people through his death and resurrection. And then lastly, I want you to notice how and what is the context of overcoming this darkness? What makes the light bulb click? Blindness, Jesus, and then finally sight from blindness. Let's follow along. Verses 13 through 35. But we had hoped that he, would, he was the one that was to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses, and then all the prophets, He interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it, and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Did you see the three themes, the, the sections? Blindness, the death of Christ, and sight to the blind men. Not literal blindness, of course. Some sort of spiritual blindness, darkness. They can see, they know where they're going, they can see the man that's walking with them, but there's something that's keeping them from recognizing him. So I want you to see that these three ideas, I think, are the two parallel sides. So blindness, part one, darkness, part three, and in the middle, there's something, something that changes from the blindness to darkness. Some people have called this a chiasm. A chiasm is a word that's from the Greek word uh, or Greek letter chi, which is the letter X. So you guys see the letter X? And the X has parallel halves. If you flip an X in half, then you you basically cover it over. And so you have parallel sides. And so the first part of it parallels with the second part of the story, and in the middle, you have something different. So I I want to walk you through those sections like that so you can see what seems to be this chiastic story. Notice in verse 13, what's happening in verse 13? You have two men who are moving from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which is about seven miles. But what do you see at the end of the story in verse 33? Two men who are returning to Jerusalem from Emmaus. The exact opposite. See how these parallel quite nicely. Then in verse 14, notice the next parallel. You've got these men who are arguing. The the word here about their discussion with one another is not like a, a nice discussion. It's literally they're throwing back and forth at one another. Conversation. So there seems to be some intensity to their argument, their discussion about the death of Jesus. They're apparently not on the same page, you could say. And they're trying to figure out what in the world just happened. Well, what happens in verse 32 on the flip side of this story? They're talking now in unison to one another. Did not our hearts burn as Jesus told us the scriptures? So they go from confusion and argument to unity and joy about these scriptures and events. Contrast. Look at verses 15 and 16. Here you see that Jesus is coming to them and they don't know who he is. You see that in verse 15? While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I don't assume that this means that Jesus was some sort of weird creature that they didn't know. It sounds like he's a normal man. There's not like this startled like, who is this guy? It's a normal guy walking along. But they have not connected the dots. They don't understand. For some reason, it seems because of even the way this is written in the original language, it's a divine passive, meaning something is being done to them that they don't understand who Jesus is. But what's the flip side of this? The opposite of this is that they do understand. So look at verses 31 and 32. In verse 31, it says, "...and their eyes were opened." and that they did recognize him. Now, there's a textual link here between verse 15 and 16 and verse 31. That word recognizes the exact same word, so they didn't recognize some sort of darkness over their eyes. 31, now their eyes are open. They do recognize, but notice now Jesus is going out. He has vanished. So when he appears, they don't know who he is. When he disappears, ah, they know. They know who he is. Now, I want to pause right here at this point to know, I I mentioned the connection between even these words, recognize and recognize. But that's not the only time you see this word recognize. I want you to turn a few pages to the left. This is going to be page 855. It's Luke chapter 1. I think that there's a possibility of seeing this meal with Jesus, which is why I think my friend was saying, this is one of the best meals in all of Luke. This meal with Jesus as potentially a climacting meal, and we know that he talks a lot about meals all throughout the Gospels, but this being like the point he's trying to get at in the whole story of Luke's Gospel. One of the reasons for that is notice verses 1 through 4. Many people have taken time to write a narrative about the things that have been accomplished among us. That's verse 1. And that those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to it, verse 2. And so Luke says in verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed these things closely for some time past, I want to write down an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And then here's the reason. Why does Luke want to organize and write the very book that we have, Luke, the third gospel, in the Bible is here, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. Verse 4 there, notice these words, that you may have certainty. It's the same phrase about recognizing in verses um, eighteen or 15 and 16 and verse 31 in chapter 24. So that you will know, so that you will recognize the certainty of these things. And so he tells all of the gospel story and he gets to Luke 24 and he's showing here's some people who know about Jesus, who know about his life, who know about his death, but they don't have certainty to believe and let let their lives be transformed by these truths. And he's wanting Theophilus and everyone else who reads it to not just know about Jesus, but to be transformed by this Jesus and have their eyes opened to who he truly is. So that's the link to chapter 1. If we go back to chapter 24, we'll notice the next parallel. I think there could be other ones, but this one I think is certain. The next parallel in chapter 24 starts in verse 18 and 19. Look at verse 18 when it says, Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, and man is Cleopas just dumbfounded. What do you mean you don't know the things that have happened? And then Jesus says, what things? The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Now, three times you see the things, the things that happened in Jerusalem. Jesus asks what things, and then he says the things about Jesus. Now, notice Jesus is talking in verse 27 Or or Luke is is narrating about Jesus talking, and it says in verse 27 beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I think this is one of the best parallels, the ironic, kind of humorous parallel of this story. Here on the one hand, you have somebody talking about the things, and they're trying to tell Jesus about the events of Jesus. And Jesus is sitting there just kind of taking it in. Oh, yeah? There was a guy named Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, interesting. A prophet. Powerful, mighty. Hmm. Cool story. On the flip side, Jesus is talking. He's going to tell them some things. He's going to explain to them what these things really meant and how they were foretold from the scriptures, from Moses to the prophets. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you. Just recently, somebody came up to me. They knew me a little bit. Uh, We're not like close friends or anything, but they knew a little bit about me. They knew other people that knew me. And we were at a birthday party. And they started telling me on and on and on about, man, you know, you would make a really good Abe Lincoln. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, yeah? And At that moment, I'm like, do I tell them now, or do I just let this keep going? And so I just let it keep going, and they kept talking. They're like, yeah, you should get a top hat. You should go out and give the Gettysburg Address. You should really do this Lincoln thing. You would make a really good Lincoln. And on and on and on they went. And eventually I said, so let me tell you some things about Abe Lincoln. And then I went and told them the story about how I made uh, national news getting arrested almost as being Abraham Lincoln on the President's Day. So some of you already know that story, which is why you're laughing. Some of you don't, but you could see the humor in it if you know my background as Abraham Lincoln when my beard was thicker and I had more hair and all that kind of stuff, and I put on the top hat, same height, was living in Washington, D.C. There's, there's some eerie parallels with me and Lincoln. And so this person's making this observation, but they didn't even know because I was like sitting there, I was like, do you know my history with Lincoln? And the more I listened to them, no, they don't. That's kind of what's going on here. There's, there's humor, there's irony, the, the contrast between these men who are trying to explain to Jesus, hey, let me tell you about this guy named Jesus. Oh, yeah? Oh, tell me about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you the true story. The next parallels in verses 20 and 21. Notice what happens as they're telling Jesus about Jesus. Jesus. In verse 20, it talks about the death and the suffering of Jesus. The chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. And notice verse 21. This is key. But we had hoped. We had our hopes in him. We had hoped he would redeem Israel. Did you you notice what happened when Jesus started talking to them? It says at the end of verse 17, right before verse 18, they stopped and they were sad you see the contrast between the two halves. On the one side, as they're talking about Jesus, they're talking about misplaced hopes, disappointment, sadness. Notice on the flip side, when they're talking about suffering and Jesus, look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, oh foolish ones, what, what? What's your deal? You're so slow of heart. If you would have believed the words of the prophets, if you'd know your Bible, you would know that it was necessary. It was necessary for Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, for him to suffer before he enters into his glory. In other words, the the contrast between we had hoped Jesus was going to be the one to redeem and restore our people and he is saying he did redeem and restore your people. It was necessary that he would die before he does that. This is, this is I think, a, a, a very important point for us to hone in on. It, it is, I think, getting closer to the very middle of this story. Once you get to the middle of a chiasm, you know, where the X marks the spot, that's where you get to the very main point why this story exists. And we're getting real close to the center. I want to show you a couple things. This word must suffer from Jesus is not a new word if you've been reading Luke's gospel. When you get to Jesus' words where you've got all these people thinking, we're hoping in a Messiah and we think it's Jesus and then they're crushed. And Jesus is trying to tell them, you should not be crushed. I have been telling you this. You should have known this. He needed to die first. Look at chapter 24, verses 7 and 8. When the women who were going there to the tomb to find Jesus dead, but realized he wasn't there, in verse 6 it says, he is not there, he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man, and what's the word here? Must He must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And verse 8, and then they remembered his words. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's right. He did say that he was going to die first, then rise again from the dead. Turn your Bible a page over to chapter 22, verse 37. 22, verse 37, right after the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, that he was numbered with the transgressors, for what it was written about me has its fulfillment. There's that word again, that must word. Short little word in the Greek language, repeated here again, Jesus telling them, I must be numbered with transgressors. I must identify myself with pain and suffering first. But did they get that? No. Turn a page again. Chapter 18, verses 31 and 34. And talking to the 12 disciples. He's, he's been pounding this in their heads. He says to them, See, we're going to go to Jerusalem and everything that has been written, this has been written about the Son of Man. This has been prophesied by the prophets it's going to be accomplished how's it going to be accomplished 32 he will be delivered over to the gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him they will kill him and on the third day he will rise but notice verse 34 but they did not understand any of these things this saying was hidden from them they could not grasp what was said There's a theme running through Luke's gospel. Turn the page again to chapter 17, verse 25. 17, verse 25. But first, he must, there's our word again, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Turn the page again. Look at Luke chapter 15. The end of the story of the prodigal God and the two sons. And we looked at a few weeks back. Look at the very end of that story. Chapter 15, verses 31 and 32. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and alive. He was lost and is found. In verse 32, when it says it is fitting to celebrate, it is we must celebrate. The fattened calf must die. We must celebrate because of this, res- uh, this son that was lost. He was dead and now found. Turn the page again, chapter 13, verses 31 through 33. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my course. 33, nevertheless, I must. Go on my way today and tomorrow and the following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, hey, you tell Herod, I'm going to go and die because I must. There's the word again. I must go to Jerusalem. Why? Because a prophet cannot die outside of Jerusalem. He is going to die in Jerusalem. One more. Turn the page. Chapter 9. Chapter 9, verses 21 and 22. At this point, we're like, all right, I got the point, Pastor Phil, but we got to do this one. We got to do this one here because there's two connections there's the must, but then there's something else. Look like at verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to say this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and killed, and on the third day be raised. Sounds familiar so far. So that's, that's connection number one. He must suffer. He's been saying that all through the gospel. But with our passage, there's another link to Luke chapter 24 in this story. Look just up ahead at verse 16. Verse 16. In the feeding of the 5,000 miracle, one of the meals with Jesus that we looked at earlier this summer, look at verse 16, and taking the bread loaves and two fish, these words are almost identical to Luke 24. He looked up to heaven, he said a blessing over them, he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples. The breaking of the bread to feed the 5,000 is almost verbatim, word for word, what you see in Luke 24 when Jesus is in the house in the road to Emmaus, and he takes the bread, he breaks it, and he gives it to them. My point in all of this is to hopefully help you see that there are some literary connections between the mustness of Jesus' death, the predictions of Jesus' death, but furthermore, to see this symbol of breaking of bread as we will get to later. So keep that tucked away. Go back to Luke 24 and let's answer the question. We're close to the center, but what is the center of this story? What's what's the X marks the spot of this story? I think it's verses 22 through 24. This is the middle. Moreover, Cleopas is talking to Jesus and says that the women of our company amazed us and they were at the tomb early in the morning and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see him. What's the middle of this story? Jesus is alive. The whole point of Luke 24. So we shouldn't be surprised in this Emmaus story that if we see these parallels coming into the center, that boom, right in the center, right in the middle of these themes, Jesus is alive. And that makes all the difference. All the difference for you and me that Jesus is alive. And that's what I want us to do. I want us to take these three things blindness, Jesus, and then eventually sight. I want to apply them to us. I want to do that by using this verse. I want to just read this verse to you. I think that this story is mostly telling us about a historical event that Jesus is alive. Center of the story. Most important point. But I think also this story is purposefully put here by Luke, who's helping Theophilus who doesn't believe yet, to help him have certainty, to recognize, to believe who Jesus is. And he wants to see a story of some people who are struggling to believe who Jesus was. So therefore, I think that this story is illustrative. It's metaphorical for, for you and for me. And I think the Bible also testifies to these things. So I want to read this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6. And this will be the outline of these three points, blindness, Jesus, sight. Verse 4, the God of this world, this is God with a little g, the God of this world, this is talking about the forces of evil and Satan, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelieving people to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The problem is not that people don't know facts about Jesus or that they can't see his physical resurrected body. The problem for why we are not believing in Jesus, listen to this, is they're blinded from seeing the glory, the light of the glory of Jesus. Second verse, verse five. So then what's the solution to this blindness? How, how do we overcome spiritual blindness? Listen to verse five. This is 2 Corinthians four, verse five. Four. We proclaim not ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the solution to blindness, proclaiming the resurrected Lord. Third point, verse 6. What does God do with resurrected preaching? God, who said, let there be light out of darkness, shines light in our hearts to give us now the knowledge of the glory of the face of Christ. That's the three moves I think are in this story. I think these are the three moves I want us to see as we apply this to our lives. First, let's look at the blindness. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you did not come to faith because of mere intellectualism or reason or science. Flip side, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't know yourself to be a Christian, you're skeptical of everything I'm saying right now, Let me make this crystal clear. The reason you are not believing in Jesus is not because of facts or science or because of reason. Now, that may have something to do with it, but ultimately, the message of the Bible is that the reason we don't believe is because we do not see Jesus as beautiful and as glorious and as more precious than anything else in the world. It's one thing to know that some certain facts exist. It's another thing to say, I cherish these things. And that's the difference between being a Christian and being everybody else. The reason we don't believe is because of our spiritual blindness, like the men on this road to Emmaus were spiritually blind. They, they did not recognize, they couldn't put things together, who Jesus was and how he was the hope of Israel. But did they know the facts? Did they know historically there was a man named Jesus that lived on the earth? Did they know that he did miracles, that he was a mighty prophet in word and deed? Did they even hear about his resurrection from the dead? And then did they even see him face to face? Friend, I, I'm imagining that if any of you are here like, if Jesus is truly alive, Pastor Phil, then let me see him. Where's he at? Show him to me. If I see Jesus, I'll believe. No, 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 you may not believe. Just seeing the risen Jesus in flesh right in front of you does not lead to belief. There's more, there's a hardening of your heart. And not until their hearts burned were they changed. This is Fundamental Christianity 101. If any of you are wondering, hey, I thought this was resurrection-themed service. Why did we read Genesis 3 to open the service? Is it starting to click now? The first sin opened their eyes. I think there's a weird way to play on words here. They became spiritually aware of their shame and their sin. Their eyes were opened, and by their eyes being opened... They were blind. There's an interesting connection, I think, to this story in Luke 24 and the reverse of Genesis chapter 3. Sin opened the eyes of Adam and Eve to their nakedness, but the gospel of the risen Jesus opens your eyes to the clothing he gives you by his righteousness. If you're here today and you're saying, I'm still struggling with facts, though, reasons to believe. the facts are there. It's, it's true. This is a historical fact written down and documented not only in this book, but in other documented historical books. But let me give you three quick reasons. If you're here today and you're struggling with doubts, or you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're like, okay, so what are the reasons? Do Christians just blindly jump out? Oh, let's believe in Jesus. Or are there reasons? Do we use reason as Christians? Yes, we do. Let me give you three reasons why you should believe in the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection. Number one, why does the story mention in verse 13 and following a man named Cleopas? His name. We dropped a name. There's a name drop here. Does that matter? Oh, it matters. If you're writing a, a Ph.D. dissertation, if you're writing a paper for your college or your master's degree... If you want to support something and you want to back it up to say, hey, look here to to follow up this this point, what do you do? You put a footnote. You guys know what a footnote is? Hopefully we get this image. If you've never read academic papers, then you might be lost. But here's the idea. If you want to support something, you say, here, go here, and you can get support for this idea. There's a little footnote. This is Luke's footnote. Cleopas was a known man that was living probably around the time Luke wrote this. Hey, you don't believe this account? Just go talk to Cleopas yourself. You don't believe this story about the road to Emmaus? The guy's still alive. You can go and talk to him. Do you think that ancient documents would still be preserved over the course of time if there's a lot of eyewitnesses around that can see these things? And were there a lot of eyewitnesses or just a few? The story makes it sound like every single person in Jerusalem knows what's going on. Did you catch that? There's a lot of eyewitnesses. Verse 18, this is the second thing. It's not just eyewitnesses by name, but there's just also a lot of eyewitnesses. This is a public event, not done in some private cave, not done far off away where you've got to trust some prophet to say, well, I had an experience with God, and you're going to just have to trust me on this one. The center of the Christian faith is a public historical act with lots of eyewitnesses. Look at verse 18 again. Then one of them said named Cleopas, there's the name drop. And then watch. Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? Rhetorical question. The answer should be everybody knows about this. How in the world do you not? This caused a frenzy all over Jerusalem. This is the talk of the town, obviously. Third reason. Some people might say, okay, Jesus lived. Okay, Jesus died. Okay, there's lots of eyewitnesses, and people believe that. But this resurrection thing, I mean, I just, I don't have a worldview. I don't have, like, what about science? Do miracles really happen where people get raised from the dead? That seems too far-fetched. Now, but these people, these people back in the Bible days, well, they, of course, they're primitive. This is 2,000 years ago. They didn't have cell phones or iPhones or they didn't have Google. They didn't have technology. They didn't have science. The enlightenment didn't even happen yet. And then on and on you go, right? This is the way we think today, that we're somehow superior to these people. That they get fools to believing in the resurrection because that's just common among their day. That is ridiculous, Now, there's reasons to not believe in these things. There's reasons for you to have questions about it, but that's not one of them. It was just as difficult for these Jewish men and women to believe in a one resurrection person in the middle of history than for you and me to believe it in our scientific world. Read the story and notice, what do the women go and bring Jesus? Spices for a dead body, because they think he's what? He's dead. And then when he's... Not there, they're surprised. This is not like, oh, well, yeah, duh. Like, of course, people get risen from the dead all the time. Cleopas says, we were all astounded. Did you catch that? We were astounded. This doesn't happen. They did believe in a resurrection. So Jewish people believed in a resurrection. But it was all people in the whole world resurrected at the end times not a resurrection of one single body in the middle of history. That is far-fetched. So if you think that they're just gullible people that just believe in resurrected bodies coming all over the place, you're mistaken. That does not jive with this account. That doesn't jive with history. It doesn't jive whatsoever. The only reason why this is here is because it's true. And I just gave you three We didn't even talk about the fact that the women were the first eyewitnesses, which does not hold up in court, and on and on and on we could go. There's reasons to believe, but that's not the reason we don't believe. That's not the reason that you became a Christian. The reason we don't believe is not because of reason. It's because of our hearts. We're spiritually blind. We need light. We need our hearts to burn. And I want to ask you here today, every single one of you, I want you to take inventory here. It could be possible that some of you know about facts. You believe in Jesus. You believe in his death. You believe in his resurrection. You believe, like you believe that stuff happened. But I just wanna ask you this simple question. Does it make your heart burn? Because that's a big difference. And I say that gently. But boldly, because how many times at Embassy Church do we hear testimonies downstairs or up here of people who say, I grew up going to church. I grew up knowing about Jesus. I grew up knowing about his death. I grew up knowing about his resurrection. But my heart didn't burn. I was blinded from the glory of Christ. I didn't love and cherish him. But then, their testimony says, but then... But then God opened my eyes. And even though I grew up hearing these things and knowing about them and believing they are historical realities, my heart started burning within me. We need to acknowledge this morning that this is the starting point. If you're here and you're a Christian, it's because you were once spiritually blind, but something changed. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, You don't just need reasons and facts. I'll give you as many reasons and facts as you want. I'll give you big 800-page books. We can talk all day long, but you need to realize you're spiritually blind. Second point, Christ. The solution to our spiritual blindness is Jesus Christ. What's at the very middle of this story? It's the preaching of Jesus. It's the declaration of who Jesus was and his resurrection from the dead, or maybe put it another way, What did they say made their hearts burn within them when he was explaining the scriptures to us and explaining why he must die and suffer? I have to think that's probably one of the best sermons that's ever been preached in the history of the universe. Jesus on the road to a maze with those two guys. I've heard countless guys say, man, I would just love, I would love to have that sermon outlined. Like what, we get such a short summary here. What did Jesus say? Where in the Old Testament did he go when he started with the books of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible? Then he moves on to the prophets, which you're starting to think in your mind, oh, prophets, so like Isaiah, Jeremiah. No, 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 prophets in their mind would have been the first historical books. They called those the first set of prophets and there was a second set of prophets. So essentially, he starts with Moses, the first five books. Then he goes on to the prophets, both the historical prophets, and then the prophetic prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Jonah, all those books. And they're walking for seven miles, so we know he's got hours. Anybody want me to preach a three-hour sermon? (laughs) Better yet, as soon as Meals with Jesus sermon series is over, we're going to start in the Old Testament. So in two weeks... We're starting the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. And we're going to take Jesus' cue right here. And we're going to start showing, step by step, the key passages that Jesus likely might have said. So here's here's a little foretaste. Jesus is walking along. He could have said, hey, you guys remember Adam and Eve? Cleopas says, yeah, yeah, I remember Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Now, they didn't have chapters back then, but they knew the stories. Remember how he was tempted by food? to eat a fruit Satan was in the garden and how that disobedience was passed down to all people you remember that yeah well the Messiah Jesus he was tempted by food from Satan but he didn't give a single bite even after fasting for 40 days And in the same way that Adam's disobedience spread to all people, so Jesus' obedience will spread to all who put their faith in him. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3, do you remember the curse, he might say? Do you remember when God said after they ate that fruit that there would be a curse, that he'd curse the serpent, that he'd crush the serpent's head? Do you remember that? Cleopas might have said, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Do you remember it also said, That first, the seed of the woman would bruise his heel. He must suffer. I just got to think that maybe his first point was Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I'm going to crush evil. I'm going to crush death. I'm going to crush the serpent's head. But I'm not going to do that without first getting my heel bruised. The the, the picture here is I'm going to step on the snake. But right before that, the snake's going to bite me. It's going to be a lethal bite. Jesus explains this on the road to Emmaus. He keeps going. He says, hey, remember Noah? Remember the flood story? How God's wrath poured out over all the earth because evil was on the earth? Yeah, I remember that. Do you remember how God saved Noah in an ark? Well, guess what? The Messiah, he is the ark. Climb inside of him, and God will put all of his wrath on Jesus, and you will be safe. Remember Abraham? Remember when Abraham was called by God to leave everything that was comfortable and familiar and said, I'm gonna make a whole new people out of you, Abraham. You remember the 12 tribes? There was 12 of them, remember that? Yeah. Well, how about the descendants of Abraham starting from those 12 tribes. Well, in the same way, Jesus, the Messiah, he'd be the greater Abraham who would leave heaven, not just his home. He would leave heaven, come to the earth. All that was comfortable and familiar would be lost, and he'd establish the chosen people of God with his 12 disciples, 12 disciples. Do you remember when Abraham was asked to make a covenant to establish this relationship between God and and his people? and they took these animals, and they split these animals in half, and blood is dripping down, and that they're both supposed to walk one after another through the dripped blood, and the sign is to say, if we don't obey this command, then the blood of these animals is on us. Do you remember that story? Yeah. Well, guess what? Abraham was sleeping. He's taking a nap. He didn't walk behind God in that covenant ceremony in Genesis chapter 15. And so the blood of the animals, it fell on God. He must suffer. Why did he must suffer? Because to make the covenant, blood sacrifice needs to be established for that covenant. The fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is in Jesus' new covenant. When his blood was shed, God's blood was shed. Are you starting to see? what this sermon might have sounded like as Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus? You preach Jesus. It doesn't matter which text you're from. You preach Jesus when Abraham's son, Isaac, is being offered up by his father on a mountain. You remember that story? Cleopas, do you remember when God asked Abraham to offer his one and his only son, the one that they'd been waiting for, they thought they couldn't have, that his wife was good as dead. She was like really old and yeah, there's no way probably menopausal. I mean, just you, you picture it. And he offered his one and only son. And now I know that he loves me. That's what the, the text says. Jesus probably read them. That text said, do you remember how God said to him, now I know Abraham that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love. And if you know that story, you know that Abraham did not kill Isaac. Isaac. There was a sheep at the last second, or a goat, ram in the thickets. Give me animals animal straight. Jesus says, I am that Isaac. My father took me up to a mountain and I was sacrificed, but he did not provide a ram at the last second. His knife came down and now you can know, the whole world can know that God loves you because God did not withhold his son, his only son. Do you see if you start going through the Old Testament like this, your heart might start burning within you? Oh, wow. Not only is the Bible cool in the fact that it all points to Jesus, not only is it great that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things, but God did that for me. On and on we could go, and we're going to do that for the weeks to come. But I want you to see this point at Embassy Church this is a pillar this is a foundation this is starting point church 101 we preach Jesus Christ not ourselves that's what St. Corinthians 4:5 not pastor Phil Not us as a church embassy. We don't make much of our church or the people in our church or the pastor. We make much of Jesus Christ because it's only through Jesus that spiritual blindness can be overcome. So preach Jesus. Don't just tell people what God's done for you. Tell them about what God has done for everyone by sending Jesus. Point three, sight. When and where did sight come to these two disciples? Look down at Luke 24, verses 30 and 31. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. Look down at verse 35. When they go and tell the other disciples in Jerusalem... They told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Twice now, and in very crucial times, the meal is a big deal. I believe that Luke is using this phrase, the breaking of the bread, as a shorthand, not just here, but later on in Luke's gospel, as a shorthand of what Jesus did in the Lord's Supper. There's lots of debates about this, I could get into lots of arguments, but for the sake of moving things on, let me just point out the fact that this phrase is not just similar to the feeding of the 5,000, but it's almost identical to the same words in Luke chapter 22. When Jesus took the bread, he broke it. He gave thanks, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Now, these two men were not in that upper room. But they were definitely around the disciples who were in that upper room, and they know they've been talking about these issues and what had happened, and how even the very night before he was killed, likely they had heard the story of how he took the Passover and said, Hey, the Passover lamb is not on the table, he is at the table, he is sitting there in front of you. Likely they would have known when he started breaking that bread, boom, it all clicked. There's a lot that I think we could say about this, but I just want to conclude with this one thought. My prayer for this whole sermon series with the meals with Jesus is that it would burn your heart. That we would not only receive the invitation to eat with Jesus week after week in the bread and the cup that is broken for us, but that we would invite others. Invite them to meals by having them come to church at embassy. Every single week, we have not just the little bread and the cup, we have meals downstairs for breakfast some Sundays it's after church for lunch we eat meals together regularly because meals with Jesus are a big deal it's during those kind of communal meals where people are loving one another and they're talking about Jesus over those meals that light bulbs start to come on as the preached word is being declared and as Jesus resurrection from the dead is being told we also need to embody what those things mean in practical, everyday, common meals by loving one another around tables. And last week we had in our scripture reading Acts chapter 2. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers. That's what Christians do. They devote themselves to the teaching of Jesus throughout all the scriptures and to the breaking of bread and eating in each other's homes. So invite people to meals here at Embassy. Invite them to meals in your home. Invite them to meals in the community. Go grab lunch after church with somebody, even if you didn't have plans today. Invite people to have meals with Jesus and talk about Jesus over meals. Some of you have said, hey, you know, I'm really busy right now and I don't think I have time to make disciples. You got 21 opportunities every week if you eat breakfast, lunch, or dinner. 21 opportunities to invite somebody to a meal and say, sit down, I'd like to listen to you, I'd like to love you, I'd like to hear your story, and I'd like to tell you about Jesus. What if that was our go-to strategy as a church? was to not only invite people to meals with Jesus and invite them to come to church, but invite them to meals in our homes and in our lives. Can we do that? Could you do that? Or is your heart not really burning yet? Do you not want to go and tell the world about this good news and the meal that is to come? My hope and prayer is that we would be a church full of people that want to have meals with Jesus, not just on Sundays. Let's pray together. Father, we want to give you thanks now for all of these different meals we've seen in Luke's gospel. We want to thank you for this meal in particular and for this message that you gave and the the instruction that we find from it. Thank you for sending Jesus, your one and only Son. If you did not spare your Son and gave us all things, why should we not trust you? I pray for all of us who are here today, whether we're Christian, non-Christian, whether we're firm in our foundation or we're struggling. I pray that these words in Luke 24 will burn in our hearts. I pray in the weeks to come that as we look through your word in the Old Testament, we will see that these are not just stories with moral lessons about how to be a better us, but they're stories about you. And my prayer is that regardless of who's here, whether it's me, whether it's 20 years from now and it's someone else, or Would you protect this church and let Jesus Christ be lifted up, proclaimed the risen Savior. May he be the centerpiece of all that we do and say at Embassy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to invite you to a meal.